The thing that was missing from my life when I got out of the Marine Corps, and I didn't realize it until I got back in the Union, was that camaraderie, that fraternity, that brotherhood that we have in the Union. We had that in the Marine Corps, and I didn't have that. I was missing from my life until I joined the IUPAT. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive in to this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Anton Rusing, who's executive director of the Finishing Trades Institute. Anton, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joanna. Anton, tell us about FTI. So we are the training arm of the IUPAT, which is the Painters Union. We provide curriculum to our, our affiliate district councils and local unions so that they can train apprentices. We also train the instructors and provide certification services for the industry. And Anton, when you say that you're the training arm for the Painters Union, Painters Union doesn't really quite describe it. It's the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. And there's a lot of trades in there. So give us examples of some of the trades covered by that, because it's diverse and interesting. Yeah, sure thing. And not a lot of people, when, when we describe what some of them are, they're like, well, what is that? So we have our commercial painters, which is kind of where we started. Our commercial painters do commercial residential buildings. We have industrial painters that do power plants, bridges, things like that. We have folks that work in theme parks, folks that work in D.C. We also have our glazers that install windows, install the metal and the frames, drywall finishers, wall covering installers, floor covering installers. We represent a bunch of public sector workers. We have hydro jetting and water cleaning. Also trade show workers, sign and display workers. We've got a lot of trades. We're a pretty diverse union as far as the different trades that we represent. You know, Anton, I've had a chance to work with the IUPAT as well as FTI for many years now. And I remember being at a seminar for your directors of training, and I asked them, how do you describe the union? And the director from Las Vegas was amazing. He said, here's what I do with new apprentices. I take them up to the roof of the building and I say, we make Las Vegas beautiful. That's awesome. (laughs) I loved it. And the other directors started laughing and they said, you're right. They said, we clean up what the other crafts have, you know, not made pretty. Mm -hmm. Hence the finishing trades. But you obviously are a hugely important trade. So Anton, before we get into FDI and what you're doing differently to thrive, tell us about your journey to becoming executive director of FTI, because you've got some great stories. I actually wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be an attorney. I'm Came from a working class family that didn't have a lot of money, so didn't have the opportunity to go to college right out of high school. Honestly, I wasn't the best student either. You know, I just didn't have a lot of direction, young and immature. So I uh, I went in the Marine Corps, looking for the Marine Corps to pay for college. 
I found out on the back end that the GI Bill doesn't work exactly how you'd think it worked when you get in, but that was more my fault than the military's fault. So I got out of the Marine Corps and I was looking for a job. I knew that construction workers made a lot of money and I wanted to go into the trades so that I could figure out how to pay for college. I thought I'd work during the day and go to night school. So a friend of mine from high school that I played hockey with, his dad owned a painting company. They painted houses. And he said, my dad's got a paint company. Are you interested in becoming an apprentice painter? And I had no idea what that even meant, but I said, sure thing. Let's give it a shot. So I, I started off as an apprentice in St. Louis. I worked there for a while. And when I graduated college, I thought, okay, I'm done. You know, I, I, I went a little bit different path and got into IT, still wanted to go to law school, but you know, I was just starting a family and things were a little bit complicated and couldn't figure out how to get into law school at that point. So I thought, well, I'll uh, go to work at one of the local IT companies. So I worked there for a couple of years, had what I thought was a bunch of friends and going to lunch every day, doing what you typically do in an office. And maybe a week or two before Thanksgiving, it was a Friday afternoon. I go out, try to start my truck and the battery's dead. So I grab my jumper cables out of the back of the truck and I'm running around the parking lot as everybody's leaving, trying to get home for the weekend. I'm running around asking people if they'll help me jump my car and they couldn't. They said, you know, I don't know how to do it. My car won't do that. I got to get out of here. So nobody would help you. Nobody would help. Just a bunch of excuses. So I called my dad. It's about a 45 minute drive for him to come over and help me jump my car. And while I was sitting there, I was thinking about a couple of years earlier when I was on the job as a painter and I had an old beat up pickup truck. It was a different one. It was actually worse than the one that had just broke down on me. And uh, the brake line went out when I was going up a hill. So I kind of coasted to the top of the hill. I jumped out shoved a block underneath the tire so it wouldn't roll back down the hill. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I see a guy coming up the hill that was not a friend. You know, we weren't enemies, but we just didn't see eye to eye, didn't get along. He was in the union with you previously. He was. I saw him driving up the hill and I thought, oh, great. Here comes, I'm not going to give you his name. Here comes so-and-so. And And, uh, he gets to the top of the hill and all I could think is he's going to razz me. He's going to give me a bunch of grief and I don't need this. I just want to finish out the day. So he asked me what's wrong. I told him the brakes went out. He crawls under the truck, looks at the brakes. He says, oh, your brake line popped. We can fix that. He says, get in the truck. So he takes me to the auto parts store. I had actually left my wallet in the truck because I was so frustrated. He bought the brake line, took me back to my truck, crawled underneath, fixed the brake line, showed me how to bleed the brakes, and then set me on my way. And I wish I could say we became best friends, but it didn't work out that way. We still didn't see eye to eye, but he made sure I got home that day. And that's all I could think of when I was running around the parking lot at work with my jumper cables trying to get my truck started was my union brother made sure that I made it home at the end of the day. Uh So I went in on Monday, tendered my resignation, and came running back to the union. So that experience was so defining for you because you thought you had a community and they let you down. Absolutely. So one Friday afternoon changed your life. A hundred percent. And I've never left. I love working with my hands anyway. I love being out in the field, having a work product at the end of the day, I could stand back and look at what I've done. But the thing that was missing from my life when I got out of the Marine Corps, and I didn't realize it until I got back in the union, was that camaraderie, that fraternity, that brotherhood that we have in the union. We had that in the Marine Corps. And I didn't have that. I was missing from my life until I joined the IUPAT. And when I came back, I really realized that was what was missing. So I've never left. I've been with the union ever since. I moved down to Florida. I became an instructor, then a coordinator. Then I was asked to be the director in Florida. And maybe it's been about seven or eight years ago. I got a phone call from our general president, and he asked me if I wanted to come up to the international and 
worked with the program at the International, so I came up here, became a project manager, basically. Did that for our industrial coatings for a little while and then eventually became the director. And that's where I'm at now. And I wouldn't change my career path for anything. I'd still like to go to law school someday, but that's for future time, maybe. Well, congratulations. You know, my company, Matrix Group, in addition to working with you all, we are working with Helmets to Hard Hats. And what strikes us when we interview these vets who go from the military into the union construction trades is they say exactly what you said. They are looking for community. They're looking for camaraderie. They want to be part of a team and they want to have mission. Yep. So it's like mission and team, and they find that in the trades. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that's very disheartening is there's a very high rate of suicide for veterans that are just getting out of the military because their whole world changes. You know, life changes completely for them and it's like a complete about face. And the construction world also has a very high rate of death by suicide. But putting those two things together, it provides that direction, provides that mission and purpose and that brotherhood and camaraderie and friendship and all that. That's a big part of it. And one of the cool programs that we've developed at the IUPAT, it's called Helping Hand. And it's a substance use disorder and a suicide prevention program that's available for our members. And it's a major problem right now, both, again, people getting out of the military and people in the construction industry. We're really proud of the work that we're doing there and the things that we're doing to kind of change those numbers and change the rates of both of those issues. Yeah, you know, I actually worked with one of your staff, Gavin, on the microsite for Helping Hand. And, you know, I got curious about it. Why is this important? Why is this a big issue? And he said, well, Joanna, he said, part of it is these big, strong construction men and women never want to admit that they're hurting, whether it's inside or outside. The other thing that he said is, you know, the thing about our work is, If we physically get hurt, then we can't work, which means we don't get paid. So then it leads sometimes into kind of a terrible spiral of substance abuse because you need the substance, the opioids to keep working. So it's a much needed program. Absolutely. Anton, in your business, you are training the trainers. You're working with the directors of training at the locals and the local training centers. What are some of the challenges that they're facing? One of the tough problems right now, everybody's heard of the labor shortage, the skilled labor shortage, and our training programs are top-notch. We can train somebody. I I knew nothing about painting before I got into the IUPAT. We can take someone like that that has zero skill, knowledge, and ability and turn them into a true professional. But in order to do that, we have to put them in the apprenticeship program, which requires a contractor that they can go to work with. You have classroom instruction, and then in addition to that, you have the -the on-the-job training. And if we don't have a contractor to send them to work to, you miss out on that component of training and they'll never progress through the program. So we can't bring somebody in unless we have a job for them. And one of the issues that we're facing, even though we have a skilled labor shortage, you know, every time a contractor takes on new work, there's a certain amount of risk that they have to take on. They have to trust that the union is going to provide skilled labor for them and that we have both apprentices and journey persons to send out to work that can competently do that job for them. So the contractors have to take on that risk. On the union side, the risk for us is bringing people into the program. If we don't have a job to send them to, they're not going to stick around very long. They have to feed their family. And you'll spend a lot of money training them and they don't have work. Exactly. And potentially even training them for a non-union position that would be in direct competition with those same contractors that are trying to bid from the union perspective. 
So there's a balance of interests, and there's a certain level of trust that you have to have between the union and the contractors. And while I don't think there's distrust between them, I think we need to improve that level of trust. The contractors need to trust that we're going to have the skilled manpower for them. And we need to trust that the contractors are going to have jobs to send the apprentices and journey persons to. If we don't have that open communication, that trust between both, we're never going to grow. And that's one of the issues that we're having right now is finding new recruits, but then making sure that we can employ them so that we can in turn train them and turn them into the skilled workforce of tomorrow. And that's a delicate balancing act, right? The contractors have to believe that they'll have the people to actually conduct the job and the locals have to believe that there's actually work for the apprentices they're recruiting. And that requires coordination and communication. So you have something called the Finishing Industries Forum that really encourages contractors to talk with the directors of training. So tell us about that. This is something you do every year. Sure. We're probably in our 12th or 13th year. We started several years ago. And what it's designed for is it's a timed event where everybody can come together in the industry and talk about problems. And there's a scheduled program where we have speakers and workshops during the day. And it's usually held over two and a half or three days. And again, scheduled workshops, scheduled plenary sessions, and a lot of conversation about the issues that we're having in the industry. But from the local perspective, before I came to work for the International, I worked at our local district council in Florida. And our business manager at the time said, if you are going to go to FIF, you have to bring your contractor with you, at least one of the contractors that you represent or you work with, or for me, who you supply apprentices to. And the conversations that we would have when we would We'd go to Vegas. It's almost always in Vegas. We tried Orlando a couple of times, but we would go there. And the after hours when we would go have dinner together, we had a couple of times where we took road trips out to like Area 51, Hoover Dam, Grand Canyon. Nice. <laughs> when you ride around in a car with a contractor for a few hours, you start to break down barriers. You start to develop a relationship and you start to have really good conversations about life in general. But then it also leads back to work and you build that level of trust where you know, I could call and say, hey, I've got a couple of apprentices that haven't worked for a while. Do you have anything for them? Or they could call and say, hey, Anton, we've got this job coming up in a couple of months. We're going to need this specific skill set trained. Can you help us out with that? Can you make sure that we've got some folks that you can send out? And having those open lines of communication were invaluable. And building that level of trust is how you grow the program. And we have a lot of district councils that are doing that. We have a lot of business managers and contractors that are having those conversations, but I think we need to have more of them and we need to build that level of trust even more. And that's how we're going to move forward and be able to ensure we're doing a good job of recruiting, making sure that we're recruiting a more diverse workforce that more accurately represents the communities that we're working in, that we're providing our contractors with the skilled labor necessary, that they have confidence to go out and bid on those projects and get those jobs and keep our folks working and stay profitable themselves. You know, Anton, I think about whenever I go to a conference or a trade show, it's often the conversations over a meal that become the most meaningful. Because when I'm sitting in a room watching a lecture, I'll get content from the lecture, but the connection that I make is over the meal or not even during the cocktail hour. It's usually during the tour or the meal or the fun run or the whatever. So that's exactly what you're doing with FIF is really creating those opportunities for interaction so that you can call the contractor and say, I need some help. Yep, exactly. Now you talk about recruiting and you guys do something really fun every year at the National Building Museum called the Big Build. 
And this is fun for the kids, but it's kind of guerrilla recruiting. So tell us about the big build. It's actually one of my favorite events that we do. It's a bunch of different folks from a bunch of different trades. Some are union, some are non-union, some are owners, some are very trade-specific. And what we do is we go to the National Building Museum, everybody sets up a booth, and it's a very hands-on and interactive event. It's designed for kids. And I've seen two- and three-year-olds that are just walking up to 14, 15, 16-year-olds. And what they do is they get to go around all these different booths, and in some of them, it's just they're hammering nails into wood. In some, they're smearing drywall mud on the drywall. At our booth, we bring all of our VR equipment that we use for training and for trade show purposes and put them in the VR environment so they can experience what our drywall finishers will see on the job. They'll experience what it's like to drive a virtual high reach, what it's like to spray, spray paint and be a painter. And they have a great time. My kids have been going since they were little. We brought them up there and they got to go around and do all the booths. And this last year, my daughter's actually an apprentice in the trade. She's a glazer. And my daughter was working the booth with us, along with some of the folks from the local district council here. And listening to her talk to these kids about her experience in the trade so far and what it was like growing up, you know, in a union household, and then how much better her high school experience was, not having to worry about what she was going to do after high school, where she was going to go. It was really cool for me as a dad and as a tradesperson to sit back and watch that in hopes that. 5, 10, 15 years from now, those kids that are walking through the National Building Museum come into an IUPAT office or maybe another union somewhere else in the area and join and become a tradesperson. Boy, talk about playing the long game, right, with the big build. Mm -hmm. It's obviously an amazing event, but you have to believe that, like you said, 10, 15 years from now, they're going to be some of those kids who've grown up and they'll remember the experience and they'll be friendly to the union, or they'll explore a career in the union. And very clever of you to bring your daughter, because seeing a woman, a young woman up there is probably going to be very exciting for some of those young girls. Oh, yeah. She can relate to them a heck of a lot better than I can. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so you talked about VR. How are you incorporating VR or AR into your curriculum and your training? Is that a big thing at FTI? It is. I'll step back in time, maybe 80 years. I don't know when they invented rollers. It was well before my time. So the rollers that you put on the little thing and you like, you know, you can paint the wall with it, the little fluffy things that you put the paint on. Yep, exactly. So when rollers first came out and then when spray guns first came out, actually, both of those are tools of the trade that made production rates faster. And the union back then is different time and different people, obviously. What the union saw that as was if we increase production rates, there's going to be less of our folks out working on jobs. And that means less people making money to feed their families. So we resisted and we pushed back on that. And we weren't alone in that. There was, I think, most of the building trades as new technology came in. I don't want to go so far as to say we're Luddites, but we pushed back on some of that new technology because, again, increased production, less people on the job, and it's less people feeding their families. It came anyway. Right. And we've got rollers today and they're accepted. And spray rigs have come and made production rates so much faster. And looking back on it, we have more people working doing more projects. So we it didn't actually hamper our ability to put people on jobs. It actually increased the amount of people that we were able to put out and the amount of work that was able to get done. So we have to embrace technology that makes things faster and increases production rates and all of that. So looking in the future, trying to look at where we're headed. There's drywall finishing robots. There's robots that blast steel. Wait, wait, hang on. So there are robots that will hang drywall and 
put the mud or do whatever it is? What are they doing? Yeah, they'll go in and actually spray the room with drywall mud. They actually have robots that will crawl up the side of a ship and blast it or sand it. And then they have robots that you can put in a tank that will spray out an entire tank without any human interaction, or at least not somebody inside the tank. It makes production rates faster. It's safer than putting a person in some of those conditions. There's two ways to look at it. One way to look at it is that's a job that is potentially costing a construction worker. Or the other way to look at it is somebody has to program that robot. Somebody has to make sure that it's done correctly. Somebody has to go in and fix the areas that the robot might not have been able to get into or be able to do. There's no reason that can't be an IUPAT painter. There's no reason that can't be an IUPAT drywall finisher. Ooh. So we have to embrace that technology and doing VR training hits a couple of different things. One, it kind of helps future-proof us so that we're there embracing the technology and being part of that conversation at the start. But the other thing that it does is it, it is a way to reduce the training costs. The VR high reach or the VR mobile elevated work platform is technically what they're called. Some people call them cherry pickers. Some people call them high reaches, but it's the bucket that's on the end of an arm that's on a truck. We can train that in a classroom watching videos. We could do a computer-based training. We can stand in front of a room and tell people about it. But eventually, you've got to put them on that piece of equipment. And they have to be 20 stories high or 50 stories high, right? Exactly. And it's dangerous. It's expensive. There's fuel costs, insurance costs, maintenance costs. If you can put them in a virtual environment where they feel all the exact same things they would feel. Wow. But it costs less, no maintenance, and they can do it themselves. You could take an apprentice, put them on that VR high reach trainer, and they could spend a couple hours going through the modules themselves feeling comfortable. So when it comes time to actually put them on the equipment for the certification, there's less worry about them running over something or hitting something. It's a safer environment for them to learn that prepares them for the actual on the job. So we're trying to future-proof, but then it's also a way for us to train people and make sure that they're learning the skills they can in the most economical way possible. There might be a time where someday you've got people sitting at their house with a VR headset on that's in a virtual classroom and we can train people all over the country or all over the world at the same time, rather than have people have to get in a car and travel to the training center and sit in front of a classroom. So we're not quite there yet, but we're moving in that direction. So Anton, if I'm someone who wants to be a commercial painter, and part of that is being able to paint exteriors of buildings, and I'm afraid of heights, can I get over that through VR potentially? Absolutely. So interestingly, this isn't in our trade, but I was listening to a podcast one day and they were talking about people that have a fear of public speaking and they can actually put someone in a virtual environment with a virtual audience and make it look like exactly the environment they're going to speak in so that they get used to it. And it's, I guess it's similar to the muscle memory that you develop when you're working with a tool. It kind of conditions them to not be quite so nervous. And yeah, there's the exact same thing you can do for fear of heights. We can actually put someone in our glazing virtual reality environment where they're standing inside of a building that's several stories up and they can walk over and look out over the edge and be standing on solid ground, but looking down and it feels like they're high. Boy, that's got to be safer too, because the first time I'm actually doing that is not in person. Yeah, exactly. And it helps get over that fear. I think the first time you actually do it, you feel that wind blowing in your <laughs> in your face. It's probably still a little bit scary, but it prepares you for that and you're safer. If you jump down and hug the ground, you're doing it on the floor in a classroom rather than doing it 20 stories <laughs> up in a building. Anton, there are so many construction trades. Why the finishing trades? We kind of joke and say we're the redheaded stepchild of the trades. 
which I wish we didn't do. You make everything beautiful, though, and you finish things, whether it's the windows, the glass, the drywall. It's a great story. And it takes a lot of skill. And we do make things beautiful. We do finish things. We are usually one of the last trades that's in. The thing that I've always loved about it is being able to step back at the end of the day and look at the work that I've accomplished and really see it. Not that the other trades don't have that because they all do to some extent, but we really do finish the projects. Whether you're putting in glass on the exterior of a building and you're making the building look beautiful with this glass facade or whether you're laying the carpet or whether you're doing a cool drywall technique, doing scenic painting, doing that type of stuff, you get to stand back at the end of the day and look at the work that you've accomplished and like most people in the trades, I'd drive by buildings with my kids and say, I did that. I, I worked at a theme park in Orlando for several years. Neat. And when I took my kids there, I was always walking around pointing out, hey, I, I worked on that. Daddy did that. It's pretty cool. But that's probably the thing that I like the most about what we do is putting that final touch on something and being the last trade in. So, Anton, it's National Apprenticeship Week, which is a big deal in today's very challenging labor environment. And I have to tell you, almost every guest I have on Associations Thrive talks about labor shortages, every single one of them. Because the labor shortage is so extreme and it feels like everyone's hiring, why sign up for an apprentice program when you can get hired directly? A couple different reasons. Apprenticeship is a path that kind of builds a whole construction worker, whatever trade you're in. And when the National Apprenticeship Act was passed, that was the focus, was to train people to do all aspects of the task rather than just splinter off these specific things. So when you join a registered apprenticeship program, you get to learn everything about being a painter, glazer, drywall finisher, electrician, plumber, all of the different things that comprise what it means to be that type of a worker. Makes you more marketable, gives you more knowledge, you have a longer career. So those are the number one benefits of joining registered apprenticeship program. You also have guaranteed raises at specific intervals as you go through the program. That's one of the things that's required in registered apprenticeship is that there's a progressive wage schedule. So you know how much you're going to be making as you progress through the trades. So there's a future. You know, you're not just doing one task for one set wage and you do that for the rest of your life. You can actually progress through the trade. So those are some of the reasons why. Safety, I think, is a big component of registered apprenticeship. There's a lot of benefits to registered apprenticeship, and there's a lot of focus on registered apprenticeship, not just this week, but this administration is really focused on elevating workers through apprenticeship programs, through registered apprenticeship, through unions, through pre-apprenticeship, and workforce development is a big topic of conversation. Well, Anton, I am so grateful to you for giving me time during National Apprenticeship Week and for sharing so much about what FTI is doing to thrive and do all these amazing things for your apprentices and your directors of training. So thank you so much for being on the show. I hope that you'll come back. I would love to. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you 
please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.